0: The Federal Reserve is a long way away from mission accomplished. Um, They certainly will be concerned if you see some stalling out.
1: Inflation cooled slightly last month as the cost of housing, food, and gasoline continue to climb. It's Tuesday, February 14th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on WBUR, we'll have more on the economy. Also ahead, how is gun violence impacting our mental health as a society? New routes have opened up for getting aid to rebel parts of Syria, damaged by last week's earthquake, but thousands need help. And once seen as a fringe viewpoint, Christian nationalism is going more and more mainstream. It's 4.01. Now this news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Michigan State University community is shaken following a mass shooting last night on the East Lansing campus. Three students were killed and five others were seriously injured. Michigan radio's Rick Pluta reports classes are canceled through Monday while the FBI and Michigan law enforcement investigate motive behind the attack. According to the Gun Violence Archive, the 67th mass shooting in the U.S. since the start of the year.
3: The gunman apparently took his own life after fleeing the campus. There's no known connection between the school and the 43-year-old man. He was convicted of a weapons charge in 2019. MSU Interim President Teresa Woodruff says the school is ready with counseling and other services.
4: We struggle to comprehend. We lost families, friends, classmates, and our hearts go out to the victims and families of this senseless
3: tragedy authorities are working to determine whether the shooter targeted his victims and why governor Gretchen Whitmer and Democrats in the state legislature have promised action on long stalled gun control measures including universal background checks safe storage laws and red flag laws for NPR news I'm Rick
2: today families are commemorating the fifth anniversary of the mass shooting at a high school in Parkland Florida that attack claims 17 lives the Senate has voted to confirm President Biden's 100th federal judge. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports the White House has made judicial appointments a top priority.
5: Senators have advanced Gina Mendez-Miro for a district court seat in Puerto Rico. That vote follows one a day earlier to confirm Cindy Chung for a seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Chung's the first Asian American to serve on that court. President Biden has made gender, racial, and professional diversity a big part of his selection criteria for judges
4: but liberal activists are pushing to fill even more vacancies. They're pressing the Senate Judiciary Committee to take a harder stance when Republican lawmakers refuse to sign off
5: on lower court judges from their states. Committee Chairman Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, says he's watching to see if GOP senators continue to stonewall.
6: Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington.
2: It has been a volatile day of trading on Wall Street on the heels of new inflation data. Here's NPR's David Gurra.
7: Inflation is easing, but the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, rose by more than Wall Street expected, by 0.5 percent from December to January, and it was up 6.4 percent from a year ago. The largest gains were in food and energy and housing prices, but used car prices have continued to decline. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates to fight high inflation, and Wall Street is holding out hope the Fed will feel confident enough to take a pause. But today's data, along with January's blockbuster jobs report, could make the central bank reluctant to do that. David
1: Gurra, NPR News, New York.
2: The Nasdaq closes up 68 points. The Dow is down 156. This is NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Hundreds of patients in Massachusetts are waiting for beds in nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. WBUR's Wilder Fleming reports. The Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association surveyed more than three dozen
8: hospitals in January. The group's report found nearly 900 patients were waiting for beds. Around 400 of those patients were in Boston. Adam Del Molino, Director of Virtual Care and Clinical Affairs at the MHA, says the problem is being felt around the country. He says it's largely being fueled by widespread workforce shortages and the impacts of deferred care during the pandemic. Since the start of the pandemic, dozens of nursing facilities in the state have either closed or announced plans to close. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Wilder Fleming.
1: A group of municipal leaders wants the Healy administration to make changes to the way local aid increases are determined. Former Governor Charlie Baker tied the increases to annual increases in state tax revenue. That would be about 1.6 percent in the next fiscal year, but Revere Mayor Brian Arrigo says that won't be enough. Municipal leaders want the state to make additional dollars from the state available. Administration officials say they haven't decided yet about local aid programs. Services are scheduled this weekend for the mother and son killed last week in their Andover home. A wake for Linda and Sebastian Robinson will be held Friday on the campus of St. John's Preparatory School in Danvers. A funeral will be held on Saturday. Police say Andrew Robinson fatally shot his wife and son before turning the gun on himself. Investigators have not announced a suspected motive for the crime. This Valentine's Day, the early letters between John and Abigail Adams are on display at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Sarah Martin is editor-in-chief of the Adams Papers. She says the letters date back to the 1760s and the years before the pair married.
6: One of the things that is a hallmark of John and Abigail's correspondence is kind of the, the power and depth of their intellectual exchanges, And you see hints of that in their courtship correspondence.
1: The letters also cover the period during which John Adams quarantined after his inoculation for smallpox. The exhibit is open through the end of the month. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band will play at Gillette Stadium this summer. The boss added 18 cities to the band's international tour, including Foxborough in August. Tickets go on sale at the end of the month. Sports, the Bruins take on the stars tonight in Dallas. Celtics visit the Bucks in Milwaukee. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 35 degrees, partly sunny, breezy tomorrow. The highs will be around 57 degrees. Thursday should be partly sunny with a chance of showers later in the afternoon. The high around 63 degrees. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters
3: include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
5: Yet another community is now reeling after a deadly school shooting. This time, it's East Lansing, Michigan. A gunman killed and wounded students at Michigan State University last night. And details are still emerging as the investigation continues. Michigan Public Radio Network's Colin Jackson reports.
10: All day, Michigan State students have been dropping off flowers at a makeshift memorial at a place called The Rock. MSU senior Sarah Lenhoff is among those who dropped by.
11: I live
12: directly across the street from the Union, and I like me and my roommate are nosy, so we ran to the window and we saw some cops, and I watched everyone flood out of the building. Um, and so this is the only way I can think to process it.
10: Three students died during the shooting. Five were injured. They are being treated at a hospital about 10 minutes down the road. It's been a trying moment for Dr. Denny Martin, who teared up during the press conference. He says four of the students required surgery.
8: Their conditions are evolving. Again, I'll say that they're all absolutely in a critical condition, um, but there's there's varying degrees of that. But I think it's just too early. It's too early on in their course to um, to give any kind of you know prognosis at this point.
10: University police have confirmed that the suspect was 43 years old, but they haven't released many of the details. Police say they made contact with him around three hours after the incident following the release of security camera footage and a tip from a citizen. The suspect was found dead off campus from an apparent self afflicted gunshot wound. MSU Interim Deputy Police Chief Chris Rosman says they're still working to find a motive. We have absolutely uh, no idea what the motive was at this
13: point. We can confirm that the 43-year-old suspect had no affiliation to the university. He was not a student, faculty, staff, um, current or previous.
10: This is the second mass shooting at a school to have occurred in Michigan in less than two years. It was in November of 2021 that a student at Oxford High School opened fire on his classmates, killing four. Some photos taken during Monday night's emergency showed at least one MSU student wearing a sweatshirt memorializing the Oxford shooting. Today, Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who represents the area, called for action.
14: I cannot believe that I am here again doing this 15 months later. And I am filled with rage that we have to have another press conference to talk about our children being killed in their schools. And I would say that you either care about protecting kids or you don't.
10: After the mass shooting at Oxford High School, state lawmakers proposed safe storage and red flag gun laws, but they never moved under what was then a Republican-controlled legislature. Democrats now have the majorities to get them passed. At the state capitol, Senate Majority Leader Winnie Brinks promised legislation in the aftermath of this shooting at Michigan State.
15: Whether it's mass shootings, homicides, or suicide, we know there is not one bill or one policy that can uh, uh, make all of that go away overnight but we do know that there is a culture of violence that we can make a direct impact on.
10: MSU's campus is just a few miles down the road from the state capitol. And today, many students said it's hard to imagine anything bringing back a sense of normalcy. The university's interim president, Teresa Woodruff, says counseling sources are available. Classes won't be held until next Monday.
4: We ask each of you to honor your feelings and to take care of yourself and each other. And together, we will come back more resilient than ever.
10: That may take some time for some here. At The Rock, serving today as a makeshift memorial, red letters spray-painted on it as simply, how many more? For NPR News, I'm Colin Jackson in East Lansing.
9: Even as the details continue to emerge from East Lansing, Michigan, we're reminded that the shooting there took place on the eve of the anniversary of another mass shooting. Five years ago today, a gunman took the lives of 17 people at a high school in Parkland, Florida, and wounded 17 more. These cycles of gun violence
5: have an impact on mental health, and that's true far beyond the communities where shootings have happened.
6: You can liken these things to like a ripple in a pond where it reverberates out beyond the direct impact. You can see the concentric circles rippling out from that. Erica Felix
9: teaches psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Last month, she spoke with our colleague Ari Shapiro about the psychological toll of shootings.
6: Whether we witness it on the news or live in the community or we were there on site, you can have a a significant elevation in emotions of anxiety, worry,
16: problems with sleeping. Even if you're not in the community, even if you don't know the people affected.
6: Yes. When we're watching the news, we feel the distress. We have this empathy component of ourselves as human beings. But for some people, especially who experienced the most losses, There is an increased potential for post-traumatic stress disorder or depression.
16: Obviously, the ideal solution would be to end gun violence. But what specific steps can you suggest people take to reduce some of these negative psychological consequences?
6: Yes. In the immediate aftermath, one of the important things is to get social support. We had a mass murder tragedy affect our community.
16: In Santa Barbara.
6: In Santa Barbara in 2014. So what people found most helpful was the activities where they came together as a community. that could even just be potluck and just be around other people who are experiencing similar things.
16: Um, That's so interesting to me that a vigil, for example, is not just a show of solidarity or a statement of community. It's actually healing. It
6: is. And actually, when I surveyed our students at UCSB following the mass murder tragedy, that was one of the things they found most helpful, and it was the most widely attended. All of that stuff, students rated as really helpful in their coping in the immediate aftermath. That was psychology
5: professor
9: Erica Felix speaking with our colleague Ari Shapiro.
6: Inflation
9: is coming down, but not very quickly. Today, we learned the inflation rate in January was 6.4 percent, down only slightly from the month before. Stubbornly high inflation means that the Federal Reserve is likely to keep raising interest rates, at least for the next few months. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. And Scott, what does this new inflation report tell us about which way prices are headed?
17: it tells us the prices are settling down, but not as quickly as we'd like. Uh, The annual inflation rate has fallen for seven months in a row after hitting a four decade high last June. But it's still higher than we were used to uh, back before the pandemic. Uh, Just between December and January, prices jumped half a percent. That was largely as a result of rising rent and food and gasoline prices. Kathy Pashjancic, who's chief economist at Nationwide, says that means the Federal Reserve is likely to push interest rates even higher in the coming months as it tries to wring these high prices out of the economy.
0: The Federal Reserve is a long way away from mission accomplished. Um, They want to see that, you know, continued progress. And they certainly will be concerned if you see some stalling out.
17: Now, progress in lowering inflation didn't stall out in January, but it certainly slowed. And getting inflation all the way down to the Fed's target of 2% could be even more difficult.
9: And Scott, why is that?
17: Well, some of the temporary or one-off things that were driving inflation have already been dealt with. Uh, For example, the supply chain snarls that caused a lot of price spikes early in the pandemic have started to come untangled. As a result, we've seen a drop in the price of things like used cars. Uh, Gasoline prices, which soared to record highs after the Russia invasion of Ukraine, have come back to earth. Housing costs are still high, but they're expected to come down as cheaper rents that we can already see in the market start to show up in the official data. That leaves the price of services, things like auto repair, which has jumped 23% in the last year. The Fed's keeping a close eye on those prices, and they could be harder to control because so much of the price of services is driven by the cost of labor, and that means wages, which typically move in only one direction.
9: Have rising prices put a damper on people's spending?
17: Somewhat. uh, Spending did tail off at the end of last year. But forecasters think we could see a nice rebound when the January retail numbers come out tomorrow. Remember, we've added a ton of jobs over the last 12 months. And over the last seven months, wage growth has actually outpaced inflation. Vosjancik says that means a lot of people have money to keep spending if they want to.
0: Consumers have more purchasing power than we thought as we ended 2022. In large part, because the hiring was so strong, my sense will be that to measure going to spend
17: a lot of that a possible clue to that willingness to spend was buried in today's inflation report and it's this one Uh, the price of men's underwear jumped five and a half percent last month Uh, that suggests pretty robust demand now former federal reserve chairman alan greenspan used to consider men's underwear a kind of economic bellwether Uh, it's generally out of sight nobody knows if you're wearing a new pair so if you're gloomy about the economy you make do without you only splurge when you're feeling confident a 5.5% price jump in a single month suggests a lot of men are feeling pretty upbeat about the economy. Uh, women's underwear prices, up only 2% last month.
9: Huh, who knew? NPR Scott Horsley, thank you.
17: Happy Valentine's
9: Day.
5: Juana, I don't think the world has mentioned enough today that it is Valentine's Day.
9: Gotta be honest here, I don't really observe this holiday. It's too cheesy, and I don't even really like chocolate.
5: <laughs> well, whether you are a fan or not of this holiday... Just be glad you weren't around for Valentine's Day in ancient Rome. It was actually a pretty brutal affair. You see, in mid-February, Roman men would sacrifice goats and a dog, make thongs from goat skins, and then run through Rome wearing those thongs, whipping women with straps of goat hide. And some women would line up for this, believing it would boost fertility. Some historians say that violent holiday, the Feast of Lupercalia, may be the pagan precursor to Valentine's Day.
15: Okay,
9: so what about St. Valentine himself? Where does he come in?
5: Well, there's an even worse story there. In the 3rd century, one or two Christians named Valentine—historians aren't sure how many—apparently angered the Roman emperor, and they became martyrs. And the Catholic Church began honoring them with St. Valentine's Day on February 14th, right around the same time as the goat festival. It sounds like this holiday has some really grim origins. Yes, you can read more about the dark history behind Valentine's Day at NPR.org. And this is
9: NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, how women in Tehran are protesting Iran's strict dress code by going out in public with uncovered hair. That's ahead here on WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day mixed. The Dow was down about a half a percent at 34,089. S&P 500 up a fraction at 4,136. And the Nasdaq was up a little more than a half a percent at 11,960. In other business news, a Russian millionaire with ties to the Kremlin has been found guilty in Boston Federal Court of insider trading. Jurors convicted Vladislav Klushin. It's for his role in the $90 million scheme. Prosecutors say he made illegal stock trades using secret earnings information from companies like Microsoft that was stolen from US computer networks. Four other people who allegedly took part in the scheme remain at large. Red Sox Chief Baseball Officer Heim Bloom says he hasn't thought about the possibility of his job being in jeopardy after a disappointing season. Bloom told reporters in Fort Myers today that he doesn't find it productive to think that way. He says he's instead focused on putting the team in a position to win. The Red Sox finished last season in last place and are projected to finish last again this year. It's 420.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Inspire future generations with an education degree from Leslie University. Learn more at leslie.edu.
1: Well, of increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 35. Partly sunny and breezy tomorrow.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News,
9: this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And
5: I'm Elsa Chang. People in northern Syria are still reeling from last week's earthquakes and the difficulties of getting aid. And we're going to hear now about the view in Syria. A note on the geography first. There is damage in parts of Syria that's controlled by the government and in areas outside the government's control, held by rebels. Precise numbers of those who have died are difficult to get right now, but at least 2,200 people have died in those opposition areas. But it's been hard to get aid in because of resistance from the government. Just last night, the United Nations announced that Syria has agreed to new routes into the area. NPR's Ruth Sherlock was in the opposition area today and joins us now from Turkey. Hi, Ruth. Hi. So I understand you went to a severely damaged town, to to a shelter there, and to a hospital. What did you hear from people?
20: Well, you know, some of what I heard was, to be honest, just completely gut-wrenching. Some of what I saw, too. Um, We went to this hospital where we saw this surgeon who was pale and exhausted. He told us he would performed maybe 15 amputations on patients, mostly children. And then this photographer had photos of eight dead children that have been as yet unidentified. I I actually couldn't look, really. but he's posting those photos in the local police station and the local council for anybody who might be searching for them. And at the moment those bodies are lying just unclaimed in the hospital morgue. Then doctors took us around the wards, and we arrived in a room where we met Mohammed, who's eight. He had a broken arm and a broken leg and this plastic toy car beside him. We spoke to his great aunt, Yasmin Marjan, to learn more about his story.
21: What about this? They stayed for three days till they could, like, take them out of the rubble.
20: Who, who's they? Him and... Him and...? and the,
21: father, the father and the mother of the, if the kid.
20: Are they alive, his parents?
21: No, they oh, all they passed, passed away. Passed away. Mm.
20: He's got a sister as well? What?
21: Yeah, all of them died. He used to have sisters.
20: So he's an orphan now and Marjan is his closest surviving relative. You know, I said, are you going to take care of him? And she said, I want to. Um, She's not sure how because her home has also been destroyed in the earthquake.
5: Well, many other people, thousands of people have lost their homes. I know you visited some people at a makeshift displacement camp. What was it like there?
20: It was this gymnasium with hundreds of families, lots of sounds of children running around, and these families have just literally lain blankets on the hard floor. That's their home now. Um, we met Shadia Afra. She's a mother of four young children who were there with her. Through an interpreter, I asked her how she tries to protect her children from the trauma of what they're experiencing.
6: Wherever you are in Syria,
15: the small kids... They get way older way too quick from the realities that they witness every
20: single day. There's
15: nothing that they haven't seen yet.
20: You know, uh, this is still a country in a civil war and this earthquake follows children having survived airstrikes and displacement.
5: Well, what is the latest on trying to get more aid into these areas?
20: Well, this is the reason why we were brought into Syria by this opposition group, the Syrian Emergency Task Force to highlight the problems of getting aid into Syria. Like you said, you know, the Syrian regime considers bringing aid over the border from Turkey, a violation of its sovereignty and its allies, you know, Russia and China, have repeatedly tried to limit, with votes at the UN Security Council, limit access across that Turkish border into Syria. But what this group is saying now is that this earthquake highlights the failure of that. They say the United Nations should not be beholden to the regime and its allies and that in a humanitarian catastrophe if you like this. Aid should be the priority, not politics. And they should have just moved faster because that might have saved more lives.
5: That is MPR's Ruth Sherlock in southern Turkey, just back from a trip into Syria. Thank you so much, Ruth.
20: Thank you.
9: Christian nationalism has long been seen as a fringe viewpoint, but it is becoming more and more mainstream. That's according to a new survey from the Public Religion Research Institute and the Brookings Institution. They found an influential minority of Americans, particularly in the Republican Party, believe the country should be a strictly Christian nation. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports.
22: We need to be the party of nationalism, and I'm a Christian and I say it proudly, we should be Christian nationalists.
23: That was Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene during an interview this past summer. Christian nationalism, by the way, claims the U.S. is a Christian nation and that the country's laws should be rooted in Christian values. This point of view has long been most prominent in white evangelical spaces. But Robert Jones with the Public Religion Research Institute says he's been hearing it lately in other spaces, too, like members of Congress.
24: And there was some data out there. But what we saw as a need was to have a real set of of data that would quantify what that term means, how many Americans really adhered to it. And we also wanted a more nuanced view, not just people who were hard adherents, but maybe people who were sympathetic.
23: And what his group found is that about 54 percent of Republicans either adhere to or sympathize with Christian nationalism. This does remain a minority opinion nationwide. According to the survey, only 10% of Americans view themselves as adherents of Christian nationalism. About 19% of all Americans said they sympathize with these views. Kristen Cobus dumay a history professor at Calvin University, says it's also important to note that these views are nothing new.
11: These ideas have been widely held throughout American history, and particularly since the 1970s with the rise of the Christian right.
23: May says, as the country has become less white and Christian, these adherents to Christian nationalism want to hold on to their cultural and political power. That even includes authoritarianism. According to the survey, half of Christian nationalism adherents and nearly four in ten sympathizers said they support the idea of an authoritarian leader.
11: At its root, there are some some you know, deeply anti-democratic impulses here, and so to see that more than half of one political party is um, committed to Christian nationalism, I think, explains a lot in terms of our inability to achieve much bipartisan agreement. The survey also found correlations
23: between people who hold Christian nationalist views, as well as anti-Black, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim, and patriarchal views. Tim Whitaker is the founder of the New Evangelicals. He grew up in the church and now spends his life trying to detangle these kinds of views from the evangelical faith. He says he's worried parts of his community are becoming anti-American.
7: Most Christian nationalists, either adherents or sympathizers, either agree or strongly agree with the notion that they should live in a country full of other christians
23: whitaker says he has faith that most americans will continue to reject these ideas when they hear them but he's worried about the outsized influence these views have in the republican party
7: the reality is is that a lot of these folks especially the adherents are very militant in this belief that god has given them a mandate to rule over the nation and so for them i think that that compromise is a sign of weakness. And realistically, the GOP needs to understand what they're dealing with.
23: And this is just the beginning, Robert Jones of PRRI says, of researchers like him understanding the scale of this belief in America. He says over time, we will have a better idea of whether these views are becoming more or less widely held. Ashley Lopez, NPR News.
1: This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. It's 51 degrees in Boston at 4.30. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with climate activist Greta Thunberg about a new collection of climate essays that she's edited. It's called The Climate Book. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast tonight... We'll have increasing clouds. The lows will be around 35 degrees, partly sunny and breezy tomorrow. The high is around 57.
25: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org.
26: I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healy joins us. She's one month into office, and her to-do list? pretty long, from Boston rent control to a new head for the Massachusetts State Police, and some roads and bridges and trains along the way. Maura Healy is on Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
27: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Police say the gunman who fatally shot three students and wounded five others last night at Michigan State University had a previous gun violation, but investigators have yet to find any link between the 43-year-old gunman and the university. Police say Anthony McRae, uh, McRae died of a self-inflicted gunshot when he was confronted by police off campus hours after the first shots were fired. President Biden pledged his support today for all those impacted by gun violence.
28: Our hearts are with the students and the families of Michigan State University. Last night I spoke with Governor Whitmer and uh, the FBI and additional federal law enforcement are on the ground assisting the state and local folks and uh, three lives have been lost and five seriously injured. And it's a family's worst nightmare. It's happening far too often in this country.
27: McRae previously served 18 months probation for possessing a loaded gun in a vehicle. The Uvalde School Board uh, addressed its decision to end a review of the police response to the Robb Elementary School shooting last May. Mariana Navarro of Texas Public Radio reports.
22: The district announced last year it would work with the private firm JPPI Investigations to conduct a review of how police responded to the mass shooting. Interim Superintendent Gary Patterson said JPPI was mentioned as an option but was never officially authorized.
17: We never engaged JPPI, we never signed anything with JPPI and never paid JPPI anything having to do with an investigation into our police department.
22: A press release by the district in September stated otherwise. Patterson apologized for the confusion. Patterson says district police response has been subject to other investigations. Also at the meeting, the board unanimously approved a motion to end its school year before the May 24th anniversary of the massacre.
1: This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. All three Massachusetts casinos accepted illegal sports bets for the, in the first weeks of sports betting here in the state. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission announced today that MGM Springfield accepted wagers on Harvard basketball games. The state explicitly bans betting on local college sports outside tournament situations. Gaming Commissioner Nakisha Skinner says the matters may prove to be relatively routine.
29: And I don't know if it's an efficient use of the commissioners to review each and every one of these, these incidents at an adjudicatory hearing in the first instance.
1: Last week, the Gaming Commission said Encore Boston and Plainridge accepted illegal wagers on basketball, uh, local basketball games. All three violations were self-reported. Hundreds of thousands of Massachusetts households are facing a significant cut in food benefits next month. Low-income families have been getting additional money for food during the pandemic because the federal government boosted funding to the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, or SNAP, additional aid resulted in at least $95 a month in extra money for low-income families. Congress recently decided to cut the additional aid, meaning Massachusetts families will stop getting the extra money after March 2nd. Governor Mara Healy has proposed partially funding the additional aid for another three months. The MBTA Transit Workers Union says assaults against its members are on the rise. T officials reported 24 physical and verbal assaults to bus-, to bus and rail employees in December of last year. The union is pushing for tougher penalties for people who attack transit workers. Representative Joe McGonigal filed legislation that would impose prison time of up to two years or a fine of up to $5,000 for such an incident. We've got to get serious. They're being kicked at, they're being punched. You go to work, you're an essential worker, you're
27: just trying to make a day's pay, and it should not happen.
1: MBTA officials say they're working to address employee issues, including the hiring of more transit police officers. Well, if you look up into the sky tonight, you might see a mysterious string of lights. They're not UFOs, but rather Starlink satellites launched into space by the company SpaceX. Bostonians have a good chance to see them around 6.30 tonight and all this week it's 435. We're funded by you,
3: our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. Laurenholleran.com.
1: In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight, the lows around 35, partly sunny and breezy tomorrow, a high of 57. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
24: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. One of my colleagues on this program has some advice he gives when you're heading out into the world to report. Notice what you notice, he says. The thing that jumps out at you, that is worth putting in your story. Well, I heard those words spinning in my head as I reported in Tehran these last few days. One thing that is really striking me as we move around the city is you see women on the streets with their hair not covered. Still the majority of women, I would say, are wearing hijab or wearing a scarf, but a lot aren't, younger and older, and I'm curious about the reasons why. We had traveled to Iran to talk to as many people as we could, ask what's on their minds, five months after anti-government protests broke out, protests that have shaken this country and on which the government has brutally cracked down. Those protests, you'll recall, were ignited last September after 22-year-old Masa Amini was arrested, reportedly for not wearing her headscarf correctly. She died in police custody. And after that, many Iranian women have said, enough. Here on Tadrish Square, a big traffic circle in Posh, North Tehran, these women, they are everywhere. You're not wearing hijab, is that new? Did you wear one before the protest? Yes, before. Mm -hmm. I use
6: it, but right now, no. When
24: did you take it off? Do you remember?
6: Maybe three or four months ago. After the death of Masa Amini.
24: After the death of Masa Amini. This is a mother and daughter, ages 63 and 41, who we flagged down as they strolled from Tajrish Square up the block towards a shopping mall. We agreed not to use their names. Same for many people we interviewed in Iran who are critical of the government in order to protect them from repercussions. The mom told us she took off her headscarf in solidarity with the mothers of protesters who have been killed standing up to the regime. <laughs>
30: The only thing that I can actually do at this age and what I can do now is to not have a scarf. To have the scarf or to not have the scarf for me is not very important. I'm not young to show off my hair, but I'm not wearing it to show that my views are against the government's views. What has the reaction been from your friends, from the rest of your family? I have a respect for a hijab because my sister wears the hijab, my mother wears it. My friends at the beginning, they were a bit worried and they would tell me to wear the hijab. But I told them that you have, if you don't believe in the hijab, you have to show your opinion. An old lady came and told me, well done, you're not wearing the hijab. I want to wear the hijab myself, but my hair isn't dyed. (laughs) And then I told her, my hair isn't dyed as well. Just take the hijab off.
24: The hijab is a religious and traditional practice. Many Muslim women around the world choose to observe it. Many women in Iran still choose to observe it. Then there's the fact that here in Iran, it's something of a symbol of the 1979 revolution. It is also the law. The women flouting it as they breeze past us on this sidewalk... They're practicing civil disobedience. Some told us this is a small individual act of defiance against Iran's government and what they believe is its corruption, oppression, and inequality. 24-year-old Niloufar, she agreed we could use her first name. She was on her way to meet friends at the mall, hair uncovered. Her take is less about burning the house down, more live and let live.
30: When did you stop wearing hijab? I I was I never actually observed the hijab, even before, because they have to get used to the fact that we have, we women have our own freedoms. Just the way that I respect a woman who wears a full hijab, and I don't allow myself to tell her, why aren't you taking it off? I want that person to respect me and the choices that I've made. Have you had
24: anyone stop you? Anyone question you? Anyone say you must?
30: Observe hijab. Anyone trying to enforce the law? After the protests, till now, no.
24: I asked because women in Iran are living in an uncertain space. Their leaders do not appear to be enforcing the law, but they haven't changed it either. Here's my attempt to pin down Iran's foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdelahian, in an interview at his office last week. Are women in Iran still required to cover their hair? Any given country has its own rules and principles.
16: Um, The hijab in Saudi Arabia, um, for example, is um, very special. Of
24: course. But here in Iran, are women still required to wear a headscarf?
16: Um, There
24: are regulations in any country um, around the world. And of course, if um, there are regulations in Iran, it's within. The legal framework.
16: But I'm still but not clear on what the answer to the question is because freedom.
24: it remains the law. However, we see women all over Tehran walking around with their hair uncovered. Um, not many, pe- many women are without headscarves or with their headscarves removed. What they do is act as per the Islamic Iranian culture. And heritage.
16: They enjoy extraordinary freedoms
24: in fact we are one of the strongest democracies in the region in past iran's government has used a variety of methods to enforce the hijab from fines to arrests to texting women spotted driving without a headscarf identifying them by their car license plate and ordering them to sign a statement that it won't happen again but people we spoke to say the so-called morality police, the ones that detained Massa Amini, they don't seem to be operating right now.
28: It's a new thing. You have as much hijab enforcement in Tehran as you have in New York.
24: That's Foad Izadi, a professor at Tehran University, whose conservative views tend to track closely with the government's. He told us there's a debate underway among Iran's leaders.
28: The government realized that uh, the way they were enforcing the laws was not effective, and it resulted in a lot of difficulties for the country. You may never go back to the situation we had here five months ago. <laughs>
0: A
24: few days after my chat with Professor Izadi, many thousands of Iranians converged on Tehran's Azadi Square. The occasion was Revolution Day, marking the anniversary of the 1979 revolution. Every woman I saw at the rally had her hair covered. But in Iran, whether a woman covers her hair may or may not tell you where she stands politically. Some told us they support the government and also think it's dead wrong on hijab policy. Here's Miriam marching in a crowd of people carrying Death to America signs, her hair swept under a loose cobalt blue scarf.
30: No, I don't support the enforcement of hijab, but that doesn't mean that we don't support the Islamic Republic. Um, people who don't have uh, the hijab or they're not wearing it as strictly should also be allowed.
24: Maryam is 44, same age as the revolution. She told us she wants reforms, but also stability. Among the many questions dividing Iranians today, whether their government is prepared to deliver either. Tomorrow, an on-the-ground look at the state of Iran's economy as its currency hits a record low against the dollar.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Five years ago, India decriminalized gay sex, and now some gay and lesbian couples are petitioning the Supreme Court to take the next step, legalizing gay marriage. But the government is opposed, and this week its lawyers are testifying as to why. From Mumbai, Raksha Kumar reports.
15: Susan Dears pours herself a drink and reflects on how far she and her partner have come as a gay couple in traditional India. Whatever fears I might have had coming out, I live a good life with my family, my friends, colleagues, neighbours. I am not in the closet anymore. She and her partner Adityanand have built a life together for 12 years. And now they are one of four couples who filed petitions to India's highest court, seeking to legalise same-sex marriages. Aditi says, it's time for the world's biggest democracy to do this. Equality is something her family has valued for generations. There's an even more personal reason Aditi and Susan are seeking marriage equality now. They have a toddler and they'd like to have more children. But Indian law currently allows for only one of the moms to be the legal parent.
6: There is no reason that our children should be denied the right to two parents.
15: I want them, when
6: they grow up, to know that their parents were brave.
15: India retained a colonial-era law criminalising same-sex couples for over a century, until 2018. And in a historic judgment, the Supreme Court has legalised homosexuality. Queer communities poured out into the streets, dancing, flaunting pride colours, celebrating the verdict. Since then, the fight for marriage equality has accelerated. It would be a significant shift in thinking about many laws, says legal scholar Akshata Agarwal.
7: Because most of our family law is highly patriarchal and you know, it assumes a, a very fixed notion of who a husband is and who a wife is. And all other provisions say around divorce, around economic maintenance are built on that. And we have not had much success in changing any of that till now in India.
15: If marriage equality becomes law, other laws on everything from divorce to alimony, inheritance and parenthood may have to be reimagined. Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, has different ideas, though. Gay marriage is a foreign concept, a BJP lawmaker, Sushil Modi, who has no relation to the Prime Minister, told Parliament in December.
10: This same-sex marriage, or the lesbian or the gay marriage, has not been recognised and it is contrary to the Indian ethos, Indian culture, Indian traditions.
15: Not all Hindu nationalists share that view, though. Gay marriage proponents and couples like Susan and Aditi recently got support from someone they least expected. The head of the most powerful Hindu nationalist organisation in India, the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh or RSS. Gay people are a part of our society and have the right to live the way they want to, the RSS chief Mohan Bhagwat said in a video posted online last month, signalling his support for same-sex marriages. And hearing that gives Susan hope that her big fat Indian wedding may finally be on the cards. Which also means she may have to conquer her fears when it comes to one of her partner Aditi's requests. It is truly her dream
24: that there is this sangeet where we're doing a choreographed dance and it is truly my nightmare.
15: A small hurdle for Susan on the way to marriage equality for India. For NPR News, I'm Raksha Kumar in Mumbai.
5: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. It's 4.49. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with Senate Intelligence Committee member Susan Collins about the unidentified objects over the U.S. and Canada. Check back on the news with WBUR again this evening. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're running errands or heading home from work.
18: We're funded by you our listeners and by Road Scholar creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org/learning.
1: Sports, the Bruins will take on the Stars tonight down in Dallas. The Celtics visit the Bucks in Milwaukee. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 35 degrees, partly sunny, breezy tomorrow, high around 57. Thursday should be partly sunny with a chance of showers later in the afternoon. The highs will be around 63 degrees. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
18: WBR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC.
31: When you think about the job requirements for elected office, what are some traits that come to mind? Honesty? Persistence? Well, how about a complete and utter lack of shame?
22: If you are completely shameless, you can get away with quite a bit in our world.
31: Searching for political lessons in the post-Trump era, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News.
25: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers.
25: And
5: I'm Elsa Chang. Environmental activists have struggled for decades to convince world leaders to do more to fight climate change. And no one has been quite as direct and attention-grabbing as Greta Thunberg. You might remember this moment when she spoke at the UN Climate Action Summit in 2019. She was just 16 years
32: old. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How
5: dare you? That call to action was heard around the world. In 2019, she became Time magazine's youngest ever person of the year. She has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize the last four years. And now she's out with The Climate Book. It's a collection of more than 100 essays explaining the fallout of a changing climate. Essays written by scientists, economists, journalists and historians. Greta Thunberg is on the line with us from Stockholm, Sweden. It is so lovely to speak with you again. Likewise. So, you know, at this point, there is no shortage of scientific reports and essays about climate change. What motivated you to put together this particular collection?
32: I think what mainly motivated me was that it was so difficult to find a source where you could actually read and go in depth on these issues. Because people often ask me, like where can I read? What can I read? What can I watch? I want to get more engaged with the climate crisis. I want to become an activist. I want to learn, but I don't know where to start. So this is a very good place to start, I think.
5: Right. Well, you know, you and I spoke in person back in 2019 in Washington, D.C., and I asked you at the time how important the U.S. was in the global fight against climate change. And here's what you told me back then.
32: You are such a big country. So I think you have an enormous responsibility in leading this role. And I think you have a moral responsibility to to do that.
5: Well, let me ask you now, Greta. I mean, it's been more than three years since you said those words to me. Do you think the U.S. has stepped up in the way that it needs to?
32: I wouldn't say in the way that it needs to. We might see some improvements in some areas, But still, the US is expanding fossil fuel infrastructure and to do that at a time right now where countless of people are losing their lives and livelihoods in a climate emergency that is just continuing to escalate every day, I think that's very, very irresponsible and it's completely absurd.
5: I mean, that said, the U.S. has pledged to have its greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. It passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which invests billions of dollars in more electric cars, more efficient buildings. I mean, those are both quite big commitments. So what more specifically needs to be done in your mind?
32: First of all, those commitments need to be real and they need to be in line with science and not contain lots of loopholes as they might do today. Also, we can't just continue to to make promises far away in the future. If people are going to believe in those commitments, we need to take action right now.
5: Well, let me ask you about one essay in this book. It's called, How Can We Undo Our Failures If We Are Unable to Admit That We Have Failed? You call out political leaders for failing to act. And if I may just push back on that, I mean, there are plenty of politicians out there who speak up about climate change and the need to act but you know in countries like the US with narrowly divided legislatures those politicians don't always have the votes needed to enact the policies that they want so how do you propose overcoming those political realities
32: that's exactly the reason why the politicians and the people in power need to start speaking up because as it is now they might not have the votes they might not have the public support from voters to actually take these measures. Right now, it's like saving the climate is seen like an act of tree hugging. It's not being seen as a way to to protect our civilization as we know it, and to save countless of human lives. That is being put against jobs and workers when it's actually the opposite. The fight for social justice is the fight for, for climate justice. We can't have one without the other. We can't put them against each other. And unless people know that, unless people know how bad the situation actually is, they're not going to demand change because they're going to want to keep things the way they are.
5: And I get that piece. But what do we do about the political math in Congress here in the U.S.? You can talk as much as you want, but in the end, it takes a certain amount of votes to get things passed. What do you do at that point if there simply aren't the number of votes you need?
32: That's what I what I tried to explain earlier. We need to raise awareness about this so that people vote for people who want to act in a way that protects the planet and people. And then, of course, I think that I'm not the one to, to tell the US how, how they should do <laughs> things when it comes to things like... Congress and so on. I think that's more up to the experts and the people there.
5: Well, I I was (laughs) curious about your own personal ambitions. I mean, you're already a political figure to many people out there. Do you have any interest in pursuing a formal career in politics to be the one negotiating climate deals one day, trying to garner the votes to enact policies?
32: I really hope not. Um, (laughs) Tell me why. Yeah. I mean, politics as it is now is very, very toxic. And it's it doesn't seem like the kind of world I would want to spend my life in. I think that I can do more as a campaigner on the outside.
25: Mm.
5: The last time you and I spoke, you were only 16 years old. And since then, you have been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize four times in a row. I mean, what do you make of your own celebrity these days? Is it ever distracting from the mission?
32: Of course, I don't think it's what, what anyone expected or could ever expect. So I guess I just have to, to use the advantage that that gives me. It gives me a platform that I can speak up about things that can impact things, people, etc. But of course, it sends a weird message that we are focusing sometimes on specific individuals rather than the actual problem itself and rather than the people right. actually suffering the consequences of that problem.
5: Right, And as people focus on who Greta Thunberg is, Greta Thunberg, I understand, is trying to finish high school right now, right? You have a very busy schedule right now. (laughs) (laughs) How do you manage to balance advocacy,
32: activism with high school, editing a book? How has that been? I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) to be honest. I don't have an answer to that.
5: Does it feel overwhelming sometimes?
32: Maybe, yes, overwhelming. But I think what's more is the feeling of doing something that that matters, doing something that has an impact, something that in the future I will be able to look back at and say, I did what I could during this existential crisis when most people were just either looking away or were too busy with their own lives or, yeah.
5: Yeah. Climate activist Greta Thunberg, her new book of essays about climate change is called The Climate Book. Thank you so much for joining me again, Greta.
32: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
19: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate, at Progressive.com not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from the American Lung Association, with support from Sanofi. They're working to raise awareness about RSV, the leading cause of hospitalizations in all babies under one. Learn more at lung.org rsv.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 50 degrees in Boston at a minute before 5 o'clock. Coming up in the next hour of All Things Considered, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has officially announced that she is running for president. That's ahead here on WBUR.
3: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm here now host Robin
25: Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
33: Why did the administration wait for eight days to shoot down a known object?
1: Unidentified objects over the U.S. and Canada continue to raise questions and concerns among the Senate Intelligence Committee. It's Tuesday, February 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have a conversation with Maine Senator Susan Collins about the unidentified objects over the U.S. and Canada. Also ahead, a recent federal survey found that California lost more than 36 million trees just in the last year. The large-scale die-off is alarming ecologists and policymakers. And on this Valentine's Day, romance books are on the rise, even as overall book sales are declining. It's 5.01 this
28: news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is again calling on Congress to pass an assault weapons ban, this time in the wake of the mass shooting last night at Michigan State University. NPR's Tamara Keith reports three students were killed Five were critically wounded.
33: At
4: the start of remarks to the National Association of Counties, President Biden paused to say his thoughts were with the students and families affected by the shooting at Michigan State University.
28: It's a family's worst nightmare. It's happening far too often in this country. Far too often. While we gather more information, there's one thing we do know to be true we have to do something to stop gun violence ripping apart our communities.
4: Biden has long called for the renewal of an assault weapons ban, though the current dynamic in Congress with Republicans holding the majority in the House makes it even less politically possible than before. The ban Biden authored as a senator expired nearly 20 years ago. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House.
28: Senate Democrats say they are learning more and more about the unidentified aerial objects shot down over parts of North America last weekend. NPR's Windsor-Johnston reports senators received a classified briefing today as the Biden administration works to learn more about the incident.
31: Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says intelligence and military officials used the classified briefing to outline their approach to the four unidentified objects that were shot down over the weekend.
28: What I can say after our briefing is that our defense and intelligence agencies are focused like a laser on gathering every piece of information about these objects to figure out exactly what's happening.
31: Schumer says federal agencies are working around the clock to come up with a comprehensive picture. Members of both parties have been pressing the Biden administration for additional answers about the origins of the unidentified objects and what their capabilities are. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
28: President Biden is tapping Federal Reserve Vice Chair Law Brainerd to lead the National Economic Council. NPR Scott Horsley reports Brainerd will replace NEC Director Brian Deese, who's stepping down.
17: Lael Brainerd is a veteran of both the Clinton and Obama administrations, who served on the Fed's governing board since 2014. As NEC director, she'll coordinate economic policy throughout the administration. Biden praised Brainerd's wide-ranging experience and her understanding of how the economy affects ordinary people. The president also announced his intent to nominate longtime advisor Jared Bernstein to head the Council of Economic Advisors. That post is subject to Senate confirmation. Bernstein, who's currently a member of the council, would replace Cecilia Rouse, an academic economist who's returning to her job at Princeton. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. A
28: mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 156 points. The Nasdaq closed up 68 points. You're listening to NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The city of Boston is launching a new program to offer vocational training and help make the city's buildings more energy efficient. Power Core Boston's new program in building operations trains students to maintain buildings' peak efficiency. Executive Director Davo Jefferson says he hopes the program directs more people of color into growing green energy sector.
10: Anytime I go to a meeting um, I'm usually the only person there that looks like me. So some of that helps to fuel the idea to build a pipeline of folks from types of communities that I come from to help get them into that
17: employment pipeline.
1: Organizations who've signed on as partners include several of the state's largest hospitals. The MBTA has announced a number of upcoming service changes scheduled for March. Shuttle buses will replace redline trains between the Harvard and the JFK UMass stops on March 4th and 5th and on march 25th and 26th some orange and green line service will also be disrupted in march because of ongoing demolition of the government center garage you can get all the details at the w at the mbta website if this week's warmer than normal weather has you thinking about summer reservations open tomorrow for state-run campgrounds in massachusetts the department of conservation and recreation maintains 27 campgrounds throughout the state Campsites are available from April through October and reservations can be placed online. Swampscott police are asking residents to stay away from a public beach after a baby seal wandered on shore. They say lots of people have tried to take pictures of the pup, but they asked the people to give animal control space to work with the animal. Another seal, dubbed Schubert, captivated passerby when he hung around a Beverly Pond last year. Red Sox manager Alex Cora says the team has to get better in every aspect of the game. The Sox finished last in the American League East last season with just 78 wins. Speaking with reporters today, Cora says the team made strides in the offseason.
16: we got a bunch of guys that have done it before. Uh, Some of them, they've been together in other venues, and they were successful. And, um, you know, hopefully we can can accomplish that here
27: in, in Boston.
1: Laura says oft-injured pitcher Chris Sale is scheduled to throw in the bullpen tomorrow and will face hitters next week. Sale missed the first half of last season with rib injuries and then fractures his wrist in a base bicycle accident in August. Red Sox pitchers and catchers have their first workout in Florida tomorrow. In other sports news, the Bruins take on the Stars tonight in Dallas. The Celtics visit the Bucks in Milwaukee. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight, the lows around 35, partly sunny, breezy tomorrow, high 57. WBUR supporters include BritBox,
3: now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadyen, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR.
5: From NPR News, this is All
9: Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington unidentified objects over the United States and Canada continue to raise questions and concerns, including with members of the Senate. Senators were briefed today on the situation. And joining us now is Senate Intelligence Committee member, Republican Senator from Maine, Susan Collins. Welcome back to the program.
33: Thanks so much. Glad to join you.
9: So you and other senators were briefed by Biden administration officials today about the latest developments around this series of objects. What can you tell us about them? Well, we
33: still don't know much about the second, third, and fourth objects, all of which have been shot down. One basic question for me remains, why did the administration wait for eight days to shoot down a known object that was clearly a very large Chinese surveillance balloon and yet acted very quickly to take down three unidentified objects that we still don't know the origin of nor the purpose.
9: It sounds to me like you're saying there the administration did not provide any additional information about what these three other objects that were shut down were. That's still unknown?
33: That's correct. Obviously, this was a classified briefing, uh, so I cannot go into details, but I did not find it very informative.
9: In that briefing, did you get a sense at all as to whether the spate of objects is indeed new or if there's perhaps just a new focus on them?
33: Uh, there is a new program that was created to try to track uh, the reports by military and other pilots of unidentified aerial phenomenon, and there appears to be many uh, that have been reported and tracked over the years. I will know that it does depend on how our radars are adjusted and calibrated, whether or not some of these objects are picked up. So we're not really sure what is out there. But one thing we are sure of, and that is that the first object, the very large balloon with the payload, was a surveillance balloon that lingered over sensitive military assets and was launched by China.
9: Based on that briefing and your knowledge, do you believe that the military currently has the appropriate capabilities to track objects like that balloon that was shot down and like these three additional objects that were also shot down?
33: These incidents, in my judgment, have revealed that there are gaps in our domain awareness and also in the focus that we have placed on identifying these aerial objects. And uh, one request that I expect will be in the budget is for over-the-horizon radar systems that would enhance the military's capabilities in this regard. This is something that I'm very sympathetic to. And as the ranking member of the Defense Appropriations Committee, I expect to have many more conversations with military leaders.
9: That raises then a question about transparency. Do you believe the Biden administration has been sufficiently transparent with yourself and other members of Congress? And furthermore, do you feel the administration has been sufficiently transparent with the American public?
33: I do not believe that the administration has been sufficiently transparent. Now, to be fair to the administration, they are still gathering information, and it may be, and I've encouraged them to be more forthcoming uh, once they have recovered and analyzed the debris. But it seems to me that Uh, We members of Congress should not first have learned about the Chinese surveillance balloon as a result of some of Senator Testers and Senator Dane's constituents in Montana spotting it in the sky and taking pictures of it. There should have been much better coordination and communication between the administration and uh, members of Congress, particularly in those states over which the Chinese spy balloon flew.
9: Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine, thank you so much. Thank you. Today, the former United
5: Nations ambassador, Nikki Haley, a Republican, announced that she is running for president. In a video posted on Twitter early this morning, she called for a, quote, new generation of leadership. Haley is the second major candidate to declare a run for the Republican nomination in 2024 and the first since former President Trump announced his candidacy. NPR political correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben joins us now for more. Hey, Danielle. Hey there. Okay. Can you just briefly remind us of Haley's track record in
34: politics? Sure. Yeah. So she started out in the South Carolina State House and then won the governorship in 2010. She was reelected in 2014. And then she left the governorship in 2017 to become Trump's UN ambassador. So that's a pretty big, pretty steady rise in Republican politics from Mm -hmm. state lawmaker to the international stage. And in light of that, she's been talked about for years as a potential eventual GOP nominee. And so, well, now she's a candidate. But one really uh fascinating and very salient uh factor in all of that is uh, is trump he's a very complicating factor uh, nikki haley was very very vocally anti-trump as of 2016. but then she went on to serve in his administration which gave her the very foreign policy experience that she highlights in her announcement video so she's had a lot of flip-flops around trump and that is going to be something she'll really have to address not just explain how you changed your mind But also, what do you want the Republican Party to be? And notably, Trump does not come up in her announcement video.
5: Well, also in her announcement video, she talks about being the child of Indian immigrants. And she also highlights that she's a Republican woman running for presidency, which is pretty unusual for the GOP. What's your sense? Do you think that these will be big talking points in her campaign?
34: They may be, but they, she walks a very, very particular line here, because you're right, the Republican side has tended to be less diverse than the Democratic side. She is the fifth woman to be a major candidate on the Republican side, the first Asian-American woman. And she starts off her announcement video by talking about her race. Here's what she says. I was the proud daughter of Indian immigrants, not black, not white. I
18: was different. But my mom would always say your job is not to focus on the
34: differences, but the similarities. And later in the video, she also references being a woman. But importantly, she gives zero hint that her race or her gender make her approach politics any differently. She's kind of saying, I'm different, but I'm the same Uh as you, my fellow Republicans. And in fact, in the ad, she makes an effort to show the Dems, the Democrats, as divisive on race, but not her. She very much uh, emphasizes unity.
5: Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Speaking of historic women in politics, I want to raise another piece of news today. California Senator Dianne Feinstein Announced today that she will be retiring after the 2024
34: election. What do you make right. of that? Right. So, again, yes, you're right. Historic women. She has been an institution in the Senate. She's been there for over 30 years. Before that, she was the mayor of San Francisco. But this is also just emblematic of a conversation the Democrats have been having about the age of their leadership. Feinstein is 89. We just saw former Speaker Pelosi step back on the House side at the age of 82. Biden may may run for president again. He's 80. So this is a really big conversation in the Democratic Party, but already this primary looks like it's going to be hard-fought with multiple uh, California lawmakers who are running or may run.
5: That is MPR's Daniel Kurtzleben. Thank you, Daniel.
34: Yes, thank
9: you. Many of California's trees, its pines, oaks, and especially firs, are dying. A recent survey of the state's forests found more than 36 million trees died in the last couple of years. NPR's Nathan Rott reports on what's
13: driving that loss. Jeffrey Moore has been doing aerial surveys for the U.S. Forest Service, flying low over western forests to check on their health for decades.
3: This most recent survey?
7: It was... um Something I hadn't seen since
3: 2016, back at the height of the last exceptional drought period that we had here in California.
13: Red trees, yellow, dead and dying. Moore and his team found four times the number of dead trees in this survey than they did in the year previous. Most were firs. Think your classic Christmas tree conifer. So we have two different primary species of fir here in California. Red firs, which typically live at higher elevation and are resilient to drought. It's not good, Moore says, that those are dying, but also white firs, which typically live at lower elevations and tend to grow really fast. About a third of the dead trees Moore and his team found were white firs, and he says that's not necessarily bad. Typically, white firs are the kinds of species that are cleared out with regular wildfire, leaving more nutrients and water for bigger trees like pines. But now, we humans regularly put out wildfires, aggressively
17: and since we've removed fire from these systems those little trees those little fir trees are now big trees big trees need lots of water
13: add a historic western mega drought
7: and uh, something's got to give
13: john wang is an assistant professor at the university of utah who published research last summer showing that many of california's dying forests are not coming back Uh, and the way climate change affects these forests primarily is by making the atmosphere hotter and the warmer it gets, the more water that each of these trees needs. Thirsty trees are more susceptible to disease, to pests and wildfires, and it's harder for forests to recover in those new conditions. It's always kind of shocking because it's really you know sad to see these forests that have been such an iconic part of California's landscape, to really see them start to decline. But he says it shouldn't come as a surprise. The drought has been well documented. Climate warnings are everywhere. And die-offs, sadly, are likely to continue. Nathan Rott, NPR News.
1: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 49 degrees in Boston at 519. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, oil executives have mostly stopped denying climate change but now argue that the world should not act so quickly to cut fossil fuel use. That's ahead here on WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day mixed. The Dow down about a half a percent at 34,089. The S&P 500 up a fraction at 4,136, and the Nasdaq was up a little more than a half a percent at 11,960. In other business news, a bill that aims to protect company founders belonging to marginalized groups groups is being reintroduced on Beacon Hill. The bill would ban investors in Massachusetts from sexually harassing or discriminating against those being considered for funding who are from a protected group. A similar law went into effect in California in 2019. Fenway Park's off-season events brought in more than 120,000 fans into the stands this winter. The president of Fenway Sports Management, Mark Lev, says this past off-season was likely its busiest year. This year, Fenway hosted professional college and high school football and hockey games. They also held top golf and the Spartan race. This is WBUR.
25: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now.
1: Check back on the news with WBUR again today. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're running errands or heading home from work.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa
5: Chang.
9: And I'm Juana Summers. We are going to take you to a bookstore in Baltimore called Charm City Books. (laughs) Tall shelves are jammed full of books inside a narrow converted four-story row house and a big white and gray dog named Lou plods across the hardwood floors, introducing himself to everyone who walks through the door. We wanted to visit this bookstore because sales of romance novels are booming and one group of incredibly dedicated readers might help us understand why.
15: Hi everybody, I'm Alyssa. I'm one of the Book sluts co-leads. I wanna thank you all for coming. This is such a great show out for our first in-person research of the Romance Book Club.
9: That was Alyssa Foley. She leads this book group. Readers, books in hand, stretch from the front of the store all the way to the back where there's a charcuterie spread set up along with chocolates, boxed wine, and seltzer. Some people here, uh, like Foley, have been reading romance for years, nice. but others...
15: So how many people is romance a new genre for them? They're exploring. Yes. <laughs> yes. Great.
35: proudly in the air. <laughs> <laughs> we love that.
9: Demand for romance novels is booming in the U.S., with sales of print copies surging about 52% in the year 2022, even as book sales saw a decline. That's according to Publishers Weekly. It's also something Davin Ralston has seen. She owns Charm City Books with her husband, Joe Carlson. You
35: know, when we first started in 2019, I was like really raring to do a romance book club and have a romance section because so many bookstores don't have a romance section. And so I wanted to be really proud of it because I felt like it was important to have that representation and for the women who may feel nervous or or made to feel ashamed of wanting to read this type of literature. I wanted it to be like very prominent in the store. And at first, you know, there wasn't a lot of interest. Honestly, at our first romance book swap, Alyssa is the only one who showed up with her husband. And so it was me and my husband and her and her husband. What was that like? Um, it was so at first I was like, oh man, but like we actually hit it off, so now we're very good friends. It's definitely had its ups and downs, but The number of people who come in buying romance books has just, like, dramatically increased. And the books that people get most excited about, they'll be pre-ordering them very far in advance. Okay, so I do have to ask, who was responsible for the name of this book group? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So it's actually a funny story. I started with the book club name the Telltale Hearts because I was like, oh, we're next to the Poe House. But on a walk with her brother, he's like, you should just name it Book Sluts. <laughs> and I was like, what? No, I could not do that. As she thought about it though, the name grew on her. I was like, you know what, why not? Because there is that stigma around the word slut as well. So I was like, I feel like if we sort of lean into that, it's a really great way to show like, we're just not ashamed of liking to read smut.
9: Later, Alyssa and Davin started handing out these white and pink romance-themed bingo cards with little graphics of hearts all over them. Each square on the card featured one of the genre's most loved or most loathed tropes. Alyssa called them out one by one.
15: Let's go for enemies to lovers. I win bingo. She bingo. Okay, enemies to lovers, single parent, paranormal, free space.
9: And when it comes to selling romance readers on a book, especially online, tropes are a big deal. Here's Alyssa Foley again. They're a shorthand for what sort of
15: happens in different types of stories. Things like Faded Mates, Marriage of Convenience is one of my favorite course proximity. I do a lot of Instagram romance book talk stuff. Oh, Um, book talk, yes. And you can easily like tag the book as this and everybody knows what it means.
9: Romance reader Antoinette Morales says she has a bunch of favorites.
29: I like enemies to lovers. I like meet-cutes. I like fake dating, like, oh, we have to pretend we're dating because we're going to my ex's wedding and I don't want him to know I'm lonely. I just want people to get together. Like, I don't really care how they do it. I just, happy people loving each other. It's my favorite. (laughs) She grew up writing fan fiction, which led her to romance novels. I think this world does such a good job of telling us why we're not good enough. And finding love tells you that even if you're a little bit broken, you are good enough. If not for somebody else, then for yourself. And I think romance has a way of like filling in the cracks in yourself. Sometimes with another person and sometimes with, you know, platonic friendship and sometimes with yourself. And that's really important to me.
9: Morales was one of several readers who pointed out the slowly increasing diversity within the genre.
29: I jump for joy when I'm reading a book and there's a female protagonist and she wraps her hair at night. Like that makes my heart sing because it's like, oh my gosh, that's me. I get my bonnet and I put it on and then I open my book. I don't exclusively read books for people of color, women of color, but it is nice to look on a bookshelf and see it and know that it's there, it's out in the open, it's not sequestered in its own little dark corner of the bookstore. At
9: this book club meeting, everyone was invited to bring along a favorite book to swap with someone else. The book stacked high on a square card table near the front of the store. Morellas added an Allie Hazelwood book to the collection.
29: I brought The Love Hypothesis here because I love that book, and that book was also started as fanfiction. And that book wound up in Nakara Campbell's
36: hands. I think it's about like the scientist PhD candidate who's like trying to find love. I'm not entirely sure, Whatever, I roaring reviews and I'm here for it.
9: How did you get into
36: reading romance books? so by accident i actually started off with jasmine gallery one because she always showcases like black women and always them being the most desired also it's not like your traditional cookie cutter like slim or whatever she always features like either full-size women women who are wearing their natural hair and i'm like yep i'm sold i love it here
9: okay so i'm learning that everybody kind of has their favorite kind of tropes or sub-genres what yes. are some
36: of yours <sighs> Powerful women uh, who are trying to find love. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's that's, that's the girl That's the girl.
9: <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think people who shy away from romance books for whatever reason? What do they miss by steering clear?
36: Just being vulnerable. I think nobody really wants to believe they want to fall in love. Like we've been so like tough in. We all deserve love, and that's okay. Like, just be open, be open to love.
9: Very personal question. Yeah.
36: How much money do you spend on books? It sounds like you read a ton. My boyfriend is here, so (laughs) he right there. Okay, he can't hear me.
9: Um, It's probably like in the, like I probably spend at least 1,000 a year, maybe more. The publishing industry has readers like these to thank for the surging sales of romance books, so we asked them for recommendations this one book kept coming up.
15: Adelani Ekwezi's book, You Made a Fool
9: of Death with Your Beauty. And as soon as Alyssa fully said it, everyone around her started nodding. You made a fool of death with your beauty. Every
36: single time. That thing is spicy, I'm still sweating. Like, I'm fanning myself thinking about that book. That book is woo.
9: -woo -woo. Okay, so put it on the spice meter for me. Where are we on the dial? Ooh, 12. Out of 10? Mm Mm-hmm. Ooh,
36: oh my.
5: Happy Valentine's Day from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. It's Coming up on All Things Considered, the toxic chemicals known as PFAS have contaminated drinking water supplies across the state and clean drinking water may get more expensive. We will have a report. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 35 degrees. Partly sunny, breezy tomorrow. The highs will be around 57.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com.
26: I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey joins us. She's one month into office, and her to-do list? pretty long. From Boston Rent Control to a new head for the Massachusetts State Police and some roads and bridges and trains along the way. Maura Healy is on Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
27: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The United Nations is appealing for nearly $400 million to help Syrians recover from a devastating earthquake and calling on everyone to allow aid to move more freely. One convoy has made it to a rebel-held area of Syria a day after the government agreed to reopen more aid routes from Turkey. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman.
26: U.N. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres calls this a generational disaster. Millions of people are homeless in freezing temperatures, he says, and life-saving aid is not getting there fast enough or in the quantities needed.
1: The human suffering from this epic natural disaster should not be made even worse by man-made obstacles. Access, funding, supplies.
26: Syria, with Russia's help, limited the U.N.'s access to a rebel-held part of northwestern Syria, authorizing only one aid route. Now Syria is allowing two more, and Gutierrez says aid has gotten through another border crossing from Turkey. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
27: Former South Carolina governor and ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley has made it official. She's running for president in 2024, as NPR's Windsor-Johnson tells us. The Republican announced her candidacy today by way of social media.
31: In a message on Twitter, Haley called for a generational change for the Republican Party, adding that Washington has repeatedly failed the country. For now, she's the only Republican rival to former President Donald Trump for the 2024 nomination. Haley, who served as U.N. ambassador under Trump, also touted her record as a twice-elected governor of South Carolina and her leadership in the state. She's expected to deliver remarks tomorrow in Charleston at a campaign launch event.
27: NPR's Windsor Johnston, today's announcement marks a reversal for Haley, who two years ago said she wouldn't challenge her former boss for the White House. This is NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Hundreds of patients in Massachusetts are waiting for beds in nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. WBUR's Wilder Fleming reports.
8: The Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association surveyed more than three dozen hospitals in January. The group's report found nearly 900 patients were waiting for beds. Around 400 of those patients were in Metro Boston. Adam Del Molino, Director of Virtual Care and Clinical Affairs at the MHA, says the problem is being felt around the country. He says it's largely being fueled by widespread workforce shortages and the impacts of deferred care during the pandemic. Since the start of the pandemic, dozens of nursing facilities in the state have either closed or announced plans to close. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Wilder Fleming.
1: A group of municipal leaders wants the Healy administration to make changes to the way local aid increases are determined. Former Governor Charlie Baker tied the increases to annual increases in state tax revenue. That would be about 1.6% in the next fiscal year, but Revere Mayor Brian Arrigo says that won't be enough. Municipal leaders want the state to make additional dollars available from the state. Administration officials say they haven't decided yet about local aid programs. Worcester has named its newest fire chief. Acting Chief Martin Dyer will assume the role full-time. Dyer is a 19-year veteran of the Worcester Fire Department. He'll be sworn in next month. Well, this Valentine's Day, the early letters between John and Abigail Adams are on display at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Sarah Martin is editor-in-chief of the Adams Papers. She says the letters date back to the 1760s and the years before the pair married.
0: One of the things that
6: is a hallmark of John and Abigail's correspondence is kind of the, the power and depth of their intellectual exchanges. And you see hints of that in
1: their courtship correspondence. The letters also cover the period during which John Adams quarantined after his inoculation for smallpox. The exhibit is open through the end of the month. Comedians Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are coming to Boston. The pair will bring a new show to the MGM Music Hall at Fenway in June one of just four stops of their Restless Leg Tour. Bowler was born in Newton and grew up in Burlington. In sports, the Bruins will take on the stars tonight. In Dallas, the Celtics visit the Bucks in Milwaukee. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 35 degrees, partly sunny and breezy tomorrow.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington.
5: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Scientists say that the world urgently needs to cut its reliance on fossil fuels in order to reduce the catastrophic impacts of climate change. but. The companies that pump those fossil fuels aren't exactly racing to get out of the business. In fact, they made huge profits last year by staying the course and sticking with oil. And some companies that had planned to make so-called green pivots are slowing down. NPR's Camila Dominowski joins us to talk about what this means for the world. Hey, Camila. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what is going on with oil companies and these so-called plans to invest in renewables?
22: Yeah, let's talk about BP, because this made some headlines. BP had a plan to shift from being an oil company to an energy company, and it did actually invest some money in renewable energy. But last week, they announced a shift in strategy, at least somewhat, slowing down the timeline for reducing oil production. I mean, they're putting more money into oil and natural gas this decade than they had been planning to do. Now to be sure, lots of oil companies never had any plan to pivot to renewables in the first place. And those that did, there were lots of concerns about greenwashing or very small investments relative to oil. But where there was appetite to do this in the oil industry, there are indications that it's it's dropping. The consulting firm Accenture did surveys uh, several times with oil companies asking, hey, are you planning to radically reinvent your business model? And last year, the number of companies that said yes actually dropped by half. Wait, wait, why? Well, one obvious point, the demand for oil is there, right? The world yeah. uses huge quantities of oil and natural gas today every single day. And when oil prices are high, like they were last year, pumping oil is incredibly profitable. So to go back to BP, its its big plan was to invest in renewable energy, but its renewable projects just haven't made as much money as oil and natural gas make. So the stock market, punished BP for leaving money on the table, the stock really struggled. Dan Pickering is an energy investor and an analyst.
8: The market is a a money-making animal. And so when they said we're going to spend a little bit more in
3: oil and gas, the market applauded that.
22: That is to say BP's stock went up after this announcement that investors interpreted as being a, a recommitment to oil and gas.
5: Okay, I get it. In the short term, oil is profitable. But what does this mean for the future? Like, do oil companies think the world will just go on using oil and gas indefinitely?
22: Yeah. What I think is really interesting right now, even oil executives are talking a lot about an energy transition, the idea that the world will shift away from oil and gas that's really different than just a few years ago, right? They talk about climate change a lot.
31: Mm -hmm.
22: But when it comes to the idea of shifting away from oil and gas, there is a major disagreement on the timing, with the oil industry arguing that this will take a very long time. So on the one hand, you have an idea of a very rapid transition, reducing emissions as quickly as possible, which is still a couple of decades, but just a couple of decades, right? That would be expensive, and disruptive. It would mean higher energy bills for people today, but it would save money and save human lives in the future by reducing climate impacts more. On the other hand, you have a more gradual transition, a slower change that releases a lot more CO2. It would be cheaper and easier Today, it would obviously be more profitable for oil companies, but it would mean a much bigger price paid in the future. So based on investments, right now, oil companies are betting on a slow change. Well, what does that mean for efforts to fight climate change then? This is a bet. It could be right or wrong. It depends on how fast demand actually goes down. On that point, you know, today, European lawmakers put the finishing touches on a law that would ban the sale of new gas-powered cars in 2035. There's the same in California. That's right. So things change fast sometimes, but it's not clear who's going to be right uh, in, in this question about the future.
26: That
5: is NPR's Camila Dominovsky. Thank you, Camila.
9: Thank you. In Turkey, there's growing anger at the government of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, whose tight grip on power is facing a stiff challenge. Many say the response to the earthquake has been too slow. They say that some of the more than 35,000 who died there could have been rescued. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports on the mood in Istanbul.
21: Istanbul resident Jelan Orhan takes a minute from talking with friends on the street to say he's been thinking about what could have been done differently, what might have saved more lives in this disaster. He says he's no expert, but it's clear that very little was actually in place and prepared for a major earthquake. The buildings were unprepared, the people were unprepared, and so was the government. Orhan is especially angry over the zoning amnesties that were granted to contractors, allowing them to build housing more quickly by skipping safety measures. He says the result was catastrophic.
10: Zoning amnesty is almost like putting people in cemeteries while they're alive. Amnesty cannot be made. It's not right ethically, nor is it within the law.
21: Orhan notes President Recep Tayyip Erdogan did acknowledge that the government's response was slow and insufficient in the immediate aftermath of the quake. He also was not impressed by the performance of AFAD, Turkey's emergency management agency. But the news that the government had given amnesties to contractors that left buildings in earthquake-prone areas lacking the defenses to keep people safe is, in his view, the worst failure.
10: We have seen the places that were given this amnesty. Two buildings, side by side, one standing, the other isn't. Zoning amnesty is against the law and humanity. My friends lost their families. A lot of my friends lost their families in Hatay. We have so many losses. We all feel pain and sadness.
21: People grew even more angry when videos surfaced of President Erdoğan making campaign stops for ruling party candidates during 2019 local elections. At one stop, he boasted about the amnesties that enabled housing to be built more quickly in cities like Marash, which was hit very badly in this earthquake. We solved the problems of 144,156 citizens in Maras with the zoning amnesty. Two other Istanbul residents, Selma and Maher Toymaz, seemed resigned to the bad news that has been coming from the earthquake zone. (laughs) Turkey's never ready for any kind of disaster. We
35: have heard the zone amnesty. I hope they don't make it. They shouldn't. They forgive everyone.
16: Well, thousands of people have died. The amnesty's results is out there. The realities reveal themselves slowly. 54-year-old
21: Hulya Nejib also feels just about everything that could go wrong did go wrong.
6: From what we see on TV, nothing started on time, and first of all, the army came late. They put the military very late into the area. That was the biggest fault.
21: Erdogan and his supporters have called this a -a once-in-a-century disaster, something no government could be expected to cope with. But he's under criticism from the public, and speculation is beginning to rise about his chances for re-election. Elections were due to be held before the end of June, but now people wonder if they'll be postponed. Certainly, some say holding elections in the earthquake zone would be enormously challenging, while others say Erdogan may feel he'd fare better if elections are held later. But if elections are put off, some ask, what will that mean for Turkish democracy and Erdogan's political future? Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul.
5: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is All Things Considered on WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. The toxic chemicals known as PFAS have contaminated drinking water supplies across Massachusetts. Removing these chemicals is not cheap. And as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, the cost of clean drinking water may soon get a lot higher.
14: The brand new water treatment plant in Littleton is not a head-turning piece of architecture. It kind of looks like a field house, or maybe an overgrown shed.
17: A thing of beauty, huh? <laughs> a big a big brick building. It's not the outside that matters, it's what's inside.
14: Nick Lawler is the general manager of the Littleton Electric Light and Water Departments. He oversees the drinking water for all the residents and businesses in this town of about 10,000. And today, he's showing off his latest project.
17: This is a rate pay of money, so we didn't put a lot of funding into
14: The plant will remove PFAS and other contaminants from Littleton's drinking water, and it's costing about $16 million. That's a lot of money for a small town. The annual budget for the water department is usually around $4 million. Water and sewer superintendent Corey Godfrey points out where that money is going.
8: I guess the first thing you notice is 10 very large filters, filter vessels. They look like big steel tanks, basically.
14: The tanks that will filter PFAS are so big, they had to cut a hole in the floor to fit
8: them. And you can see they're much, much larger. They go down into the basement.
14: Whoa, why are they so big? I guess they just have to be that big?
8: So that's the carbon that you need to remove the amount of PFAS we have.
14: In 2020, Massachusetts set a limit on the amount of PFAS in public drinking water. Since then, towns like Littleton have spent millions trying to remove it. The state limit is one of the strictest in the country, 20 parts per trillion. That's like a drop of water in a swimming pool.
4: So that gives you a sense of really how toxic these chemicals
14: are. Wendy heiger Bernays is a toxicologist at Boston University. She advised the state on the PFAS regulations. PFAS chemicals have been used in thousands of products since the mid-20th century, from food packaging to firefighting foam they leach into groundwater from landfills, military bases, factories, and other locations. And they stick around for a very long time. Because they are so pervasive, heiger Bernays says, meeting the state's strict drinking water limit is difficult and expensive.
4: It is a real problem because the cost of doing this, right, is enormous.
14: Some towns have been able to recoup some costs from polluters. If they can trace the contamination to a factory or military base, but in Littleton it's unclear where the pfas came from. The water department got state grants and loan forgiveness to help pay for the new plant, but the rest of the bill will be passed on to water customers as a thirty percent rate hike spread over decades. again, Nick Lawler with Littleton light and water
17: it's it's a lot of money it's it's a strain especially during these economic times and people are pulling at everything to try to pay their bills. Uh, But they understand this community is always, you know, willing to pay for clean water.
14: So far, 170 water systems in the state have found PFAS over the legal limit. Almost all have brought the contamination down to state levels. But the EPA is expected to announce federal regulations for PFAS in drinking water next month. And the agency has signaled that the new limits will be very low. That means communities across Massachusetts that thought they were in the clear could suddenly have PFAS levels above the legal limit and will have to pay to clean up their water.
4: So I think that people are very concerned about that piece of it.
14: Jennifer Peterson is the executive director of the Massachusetts Water Works Association, an industry group.
4: You know, substantial investments have been made in Massachusetts to the tunes of, you know, $100 million plus already more help is on the way.
14: The federal government is giving the state $38 million to address emerging contaminants like PFAS in drinking water. And last year, then-Attorney General Maura Healy sued manufacturers of firefighting foam-containing PFAS. Healy said at the time that she was looking for a settlement quote, in the millions. But it's doubtful that even millions will be enough to clean up water pollution this widespread. In the end the cost of clean water will likely be borne by us all. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran.
1: Our PFAS reporting continues tomorrow with a dilemma for homeowners who use private wells. For tips on how to reduce your exposure to these forever chemicals, visit WBUR.org. We're
3: funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.
1: Thanks for listening to All Things Considered here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Steve Brown, 49 degrees in Boston at 10 minutes before 6 o'clock. Coming up, we'll have the latest on last night's mass shooting at Michigan State University. Three students are dead and five others are injured. That's ahead here on WBUR. In sports tonight, the Bruins will take on the Stars in Dallas. The Celtics visit the Bucks in Milwaukee. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight, the lows around 35 degrees. It'll be partly sunny and breezy tomorrow, the highs around 57.
25: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, enhancing the lives of children, youth, adults, and families through transformative care and supports. ElliotCHS.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers.
9: Kimone Felix says around the second or third grade, she went from having a generous love for math to being incredibly afraid of it.
12: My ability to comprehend what was on
9: the board completely went away. Felix suffers from a learning disorder called dyscalculia. That's also the title of her new memoir, a new genre for the poet whose debut collection was long listed for a National Book Award. The book, which also touches on trauma and self-harm, is subtitled A Love Story of Epic Miscalculation. And within the first few pages, Felix reveals an
12: experience of heartbreak, the end of what she calls a quintessential first love. He wasn't my first boyfriend, but it was the first time that I actually knew what it meant to be in a partnership with someone. Um, And I felt really alone and really unsafe in the world, and he made me feel a lot safer. And I think that's part of what love does, is it allows you to let down some of that armor and allows you to redesign your relationship to safety. And I'm forever grateful to that relationship. Um, But I'm also hyper-aware of the fact that, for young people, That one relationship may not be the most important relationship of your life. It might tell you a lot about yourself at that time, but I'm engaged now and in a relationship that, to me, doubles, triples what I was able to feel in terms of that capacity for love. And I'm really happy to have experienced both of those loves and to be able to compare them because I learned a lot that allows me to be a much better partner now. And I have loved a lot, which allows me to feel good. In the book, you write about these
9: different types of pain and loss in searing detail. There's the pain within romantic relationships. There's self-harm. There's pain within different types of interpersonal relationships, sexual abuse. And you write about them in such an incredibly personal way.
12: I'm curious what drew you to want to explore loss like this. When I started writing the book... And the focus was on heartbreak. It was impossible for me to talk about my own heartbreak without talking about these other systemic heartbreaks that had already happened. Trauma, we don't think of it as heartbreak, but it functions similarly. It causes the same kinds of symptoms, depression and anxiety and a litany of others. I wanted people to have a different relationship with heartbreak. It's something that we only associate with romance. If you decontextualize it and put it in other spaces, if you talk about it in terms of self-harm, in terms of sexual assault, it's a lot easier for people to understand what it means for a person to be in pain and what it means for their heart to be broken. But somehow, when we think about romantic heartbreak, we think of it a lot more casually. We don't give people the space and the generosity to say, you know what, you're going through a trauma. This is a trauma that you're experiencing. Can
9: you give an example of a moment in your story where you came to this realization?
12: There's one moment in the story where I go to work and I tell my boss that I am going through a breakup. And my boss, immediately her instinct was to tell me to push through it with work. And what she said was, the same thing happened to me when I was around your age you know, I just push through with work. And I think if you do the same thing, you'll find that you'll feel a lot better. And I felt so sad for both of us in that interaction because it was clear that this is something that she'd been told. And I wonder for both of us, what would have happened if she'd had said, I completely understand, take all of the space that you need. That would have validated me in a really important way and would have focused it for me and allowed me to say, wow, this is serious. And I should take this seriously.
9: I was really taken with the writing in the book. And there are a number of places throughout it where there are lines or turns of phrase or it places, even entire paragraphs that you come back to more than once. And I want to ask you about one of them. You write that, as it turns out, nature has a formula that tells us when it's an entity's time to die. And I thought that was really beautiful. And I wanted to ask
12: you about it. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking to actual physical death, because there is some suicidal ideation in the book and also the idea that there's every relationship has to die and that the entity of the relationship had reached had completed its life cycle and i couldn't really fight its inevitability
9: i think many people probably know you well as a poet and have read that type of work i'm curious for you what's been different in releasing a memoir a new style of writing a new style of vulnerability
12: poetry allows you some space to hide, if you'd like to. Memoir was different because memoir completely opens up the curtain and says that what is important here is the story, not just the language. Um, There's no beautification that you can do that will radically change the way a person experiences the memoir. They experience your story. And as much as I'm slightly embarrassed (laughs) by how much of my story I put in the story, Nothing that I put in the book was without real intention.
9: There's this point near the end of the book where you write about this guy who's approaching you as you are working on this very book. And he asks you what your book is about and you tell him it's about just heartbreak. And then you tell us, your readers, that black girls get to write about benign heartbreak, too. And I think you describe it as proud and saccharine and pathetic. Mm -hmm. You got to say more about that.
12: Yeah. The kinds of books that the industry seems most interested in publishing by black women when it comes to romance are books that um, are very empowering So Black women often wind up writing, like, self-help books (laughs) when really what they wanted to say was, my heart hurts really badly, and I'm sure yours does too. And a big part of why I wrote this book was because when I was going through my own heartbreak, I was texting my best friend, El Hilo, which some people may know, very famous poet, excuse us. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I was texting her and I was like, I just need a book written by a black woman about heartbreak. Where can I find one? And she was like, look, remember what Toni Morrison said. If there's something that you want to read and it's not there, then you have to make it. And I had no choice but to write the book that I wanted to read. So when the man said, just heartbreak... I realized in that moment that there was something super powerful about a black girl taking up space in this nonfiction world and saying, I'm going to write about my heart. And it's not going to be trite, but it could be. And I deserve that space.
9: Before I let you go, I do want to come back to the subtitle of this book, A Love Story of Epic Miscalculation. Whose love story is it?
12: Really, it's my love story, a love story for myself, a love story for my past, a love story for Heartbreak. And it's a love story for Black girls, even though it may not be super overt, and I don't say it a million times. I love Black women, and I see them, and I see their pain, and I wanted to give them a space where they felt represented. And I really wanted to write a love story for them.
9: We've been speaking with Kamone Felix. Her new memoir, Dyscalculia, a love story of epic miscalculation, is out today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so
12: much for having me.
9: If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. This
19: is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at Paycom.com radio. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vix NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org.
3: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at DavisMom.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M.
13: I'm executive editor for News Dan Mozzi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: The Fed Reserve is a long way away from Mission Accomplished. Um, They certainly will be concerned if you see some stalling out.
1: Inflation cooled slightly last month as the cost of housing, food and gasoline continued to climb. It's Tuesday, February 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead we'll have more on the economy. Also ahead, how is gun violence impacting our mental health as a society? New routes have opened up for getting aid to rebel parts of Syria damaged by last week's earthquake, but thousands still need help. And once seen as a fringe viewpoint, Christian nationalism is going more and more mainstream. It's 601 Now This News.
28: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Students at Michigan State University are mourning after members of their community were killed and injured in a mass shooting on campus last night. Michelle Jokisch polo from member station WKAR reports instead of celebrating Valentine's Day, thousands of students at the university are grieving the loss of three members of their community.
9: Yesterday evening, a gunman entered campus killing three students and critically wounding five others. Autumn Sears, a senior majoring in finance, gathered with her friends on campus to pay their respects and advocate for gun reform. She says she wishes she didn't feel so desensitized to mass shootings.
6: just so common that it's, like,
9: normal. Sears says she plans to join other students at the state capitol Wednesday in a peaceful protest urging legislators to pass gun reform laws. According to police, the gunman died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound several hours after the first shots were fired. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Jokishpolo in East Lansing.
28: The diplomatic rift between the U.S. and China following the downing of a Chinese surveillance balloon earlier this month appears to be widening. China continuing to allege the U.S. has carried out similar balloon overflights over its territory and calling the U.S. shoot-down an overreaction. However, the White House continues to defend the action, along with U.S. shootdowns of three other unidentified objects that were flying at lower altitude but were down because they posed a risk to commercial aviation. In the case of the Chinese balloon, U.S. officials say they've been able to recover significant debris, including sensors and other critical electronics. New York court has rejected former President Trump's appeal of a judge's ruling that held him in contempt. NPR's Ilya marriage reports that means he will likely have to pay a penalty he sought to avoid.
33: $110,000. It would work out to 10000 a day. For each day, Trump did not provide evidence of a thorough search for documents relating to his business. When the judge imposed that fine last year, Trump was under investigation by New York Attorney General Letitia James. Since then, James has sued Trump and his three eldest children, alleging an array of fraudulent business practices stretching from California to Chicago to Scotland. If she wins, James will ask for at least $250 million restitution, which would make the $110,000 contempt fine look like pocket change. Trump has said he did nothing wrong and that A.G. James is the fraud. Billy Emerits, NPR News, New York.
28: Prices at the consumer level eased a bit in January, though compared with a year earlier still showed inflation remaining high. Government today announcing its main inflation gauge the consumer price index rose 6.4% in January compared to the previous year. It was the seventh straight monthly decline, showing the Fed making some progress in its inflation fight. Stocks ended the session mixed in volatile trading today with the new inflation numbers showing the moderation still has a ways to go. The Dow was down 156 points, the NASDAQ up 68. This is NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. All three Massachusetts casinos accepted illegal sports bets in the first weeks of sports betting here in the state. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission announced today that MGM Springfield accepted wagers on Harvard basketball games. The state explicitly bans betting on local college sports outside tournament situations. But Gaming Commissioner Nakisha Skinner says reviewing first-time offenses like this may be a waste of time.
29: And I don't know if it's an efficient use of the commissioners to review each and every one of these these incidents at an adjudicatory hearing in the first instance.
1: Last week, the Gaming Commission said Encore Boston and Plainridge accepted illegal wagers on local basketball games. All three violations were self-reported. Hundreds of thousands of Massachusetts households are facing a significant cut in food benefits next month. Low-income families have been getting additional money for food during the pandemic because the federal government boosted funding to the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, or SNAP. The additional aid resulted in at least $95 a month in extra money for low-income families. Congress recently decided to cut the additional aid, meaning Massachusetts families will stop getting the extra money after March 2nd. Governor Mara Healy has proposed partially funding the additional aid for another three months. The MBTA Transit Workers Union says assaults against its members are on the rise. T officials reported 24 physical and verbal assaults to bus and rail employees in December of last year. The union is pushing for tougher penalties for people who attack transit workers. Everett State Rep. Joe McGonagall filed legislation that would impose prison time of up to two years and a fine of up to $5,000 for such an incident. We've got to get serious. They're being kicked at, they're being punched. You go to work, you're
27: an essential worker. You're just trying to make a day's pay, and it should not happen.
1: MBTA officials say they are working to address employee issues, including the hiring of more transit police officers. The attorney for convicted killer Pamela Smart is asking the New Hampshire Supreme Court to order the parole board to reconsider her appeal. Smart's attorney says the panel did not look at her petition or even discuss her case before rejecting it last March. Smart is serving a sentence of life without parole for convincing her teenage lover to kill Smart's husband, Greg, back in 1990. The teen and and three others convicted in connection with the murder have all since been released from prison. Prosecutors oppose Smart's release, saying that she has never accepted full responsibility. In sports, the Bruins will take on the stars tonight in Dallas. The Celtics visit the Bucks in Milwaukee. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 35 degrees. Partly sunny and breezy tomorrow, a high around 57. Thursday should be partly sunny, but the chance of showers later in the afternoon. Right now, 48 degrees in Boston.
3: WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at WTGrantFDN.org.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
5: Yet another community is now reeling after a deadly school shooting. This time, it's East Lansing, Michigan. A gunman killed and wounded students at Michigan State University last night, and details are still emerging as the investigation continues. Michigan Public Radio Network's Colin Jackson reports.
10: All day, Michigan State students have been dropping off flowers at a makeshift memorial at a place called the Rock. MSU senior Sarah Lenhoff is among those who dropped by.
6: I live directly across the street from the Union, and I wa—like me and my
12: roommate are nosy, so we ran to the window when we saw some cops, and I watched everyone flood out of the building. Um, and so this is the only way I can think to process it.
10: Three students died during the shooting. Five were injured. They are being treated at a hospital about ten minutes down the road. It's been a trying moment for Dr. Denny Martin, who teared up during the press conference. He says four of the students required surgery.
8: Their conditions are evolving. Again, I'll say that they're all absolutely in a critical condition, um, but there's there's varying degrees of that. But I think it's just too early. It's too early on in their course to um, to give any kind of you know prognosis at this point.
10: University police have confirmed that the suspect was 43 years old, but they haven't released many of the details. Police say they made contact with him around three hours after the incident, following the release of security camera footage and a tip from a citizen. The suspect was found dead off campus from an apparent self-afflicted gunshot wound. MSU Interim Deputy Police Chief Chris Rosman says they're still working to find a motive.
13: We have absolutely uh, no idea what the motive was at this point. We can confirm that the 43-year-old suspect had no affiliation to the university. He was not a student, faculty, staff, um, current or previous.
10: This is the second mass shooting at a school to have occurred in Michigan in less than two years. It was in November of 2021 that a student at Oxford High School opened fire on his classmates, killing four. Some photos taken during Monday night's emergency showed at least one MSU student wearing a sweatshirt memorializing the Oxford shooting. Today, Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who represents the area, called for action.
29: I cannot believe that I am
14: here again doing this 15 months later. And I am filled with rage that we have to have another press conference to talk about our children being killed in their schools. And I would say that you either care about protecting kids or you don't.
10: After the mass shooting at Oxford High School, state lawmakers proposed safe storage and red flag gun laws, but they never moved under what was then a Republican-controlled legislature. Democrats now have the majorities to get them passed. At the state capitol, Senate Majority Leader Winnie Brinks promised legislation in the aftermath of this shooting at Michigan State.
15: Whether it's mass shootings, homicides, or suicide, we know there is not one bill or one policy that can uh, uh, make all of that go away overnight. But we do know that there is a culture of violence that we can make a direct impact on.
10: MSU's campus is just a few miles down the road from the state capitol. And today, many students said it's hard to imagine anything bringing back a sense of normalcy. The university's interim president, Teresa Woodruff, says counseling sources are available. Classes won't be held until next Monday.
4: We ask each of you to honor your feelings and to take care of yourself and each other. And together, we will come back more resilient than ever.
10: That may take some time for some here. At The Rock, serving today as a makeshift memorial, red letters spray-painted on it as simply, how many more? For NPR News, I'm Colin Jackson in East Lansing.
9: Even as the details continue to emerge from East Lansing, Michigan, we're reminded that the shooting there took place on the eve of the anniversary of another mass shooting. Five years ago today, a gunman took the lives of 17 people at a high school in Parkland, Florida, and wounded 17 more. These cycles of gun violence have an impact on mental health, and that's true far
5: beyond the communities where shootings have happened
6: you can liken these things to like a ripple in a pond where it reverberates out beyond the direct impact you can see the concentric circles rippling out from that
9: Erica Felix teaches psychology at the University of California Santa Barbara last month she spoke with our colleague Ari Shapiro about the psychological toll of
6: shootings whether we witness it on the news or live in the community or we were there on site, you can have a a significant elevation in emotions of anxiety, worry, problems with sleeping.
16: Even if you're not in the community, even if you don't know the people affected.
6: Yes. When we're watching the news, we feel the distress. We have this empathy component of ourselves as human beings. But for some people, especially who experienced the most losses, there is an increased potential for post-traumatic stress disorder or depression.
16: Obviously, the ideal solution would be to end gun violence, but what specific steps can you suggest people take to reduce some of these negative psychological consequences?
6: Yes, in the immediate aftermath, one of the important things is to get social support. We had a mass murder tragedy affect our community.
16: In Santa Barbara.
6: In Santa Barbara in 2014. So what people found most helpful was the activities where they came together as a community. that could even just be potluck and just be around other people who are experiencing similar things. Um, That's so
16: interesting to me that a vigil, for example, is not just a show of solidarity or a statement of community. It's actually healing
6: it is and actually when i surveyed our students at ucsb following the mass murder tragedy that was one of the things they found most helpful and it was the most widely attended all of that stuff students rated as really helpful in their coping in the immediate aftermath
5: that was psychology professor erica felix speaking with our colleague ari shapiro
9: Inflation is coming down, but not very quickly. Today, we learned the inflation rate in January was 6.4 percent, down only slightly from the month before. Stubbornly high inflation means that the Federal Reserve is likely to keep raising interest rates, at least for the next few months. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. And Scott, what does this new inflation report tell us about which way prices are headed?
17: it tells us the prices are settling down, but not as quickly as we'd like. Uh, The annual inflation rate has fallen for seven months in a row after hitting a four decade high last June. But it's still higher than we were used to uh, back before the pandemic. Uh, Just between December and January, prices jumped half a percent. That was largely as a result of rising rent and food and gasoline prices. Kathy Pashjancic, who's chief economist at Nationwide, says that means the Federal Reserve is likely to push interest rates even higher in the coming months as it tries to wring these high prices out of the economy.
0: The Federal Reserve is a long way away from mission accomplished. Um, They want to see that, you know, continued progress. And they certainly will be concerned if you see some stalling out.
17: Now, progress in lowering inflation didn't stall out in January, but it certainly slowed. And getting inflation all the way down to the Fed's target of 2 percent could be even more difficult.
9: And Scott, why is that?
17: Well, some of the temporary or one-off things that were driving inflation have already been dealt with. Uh, For example, the supply chain snarls that caused a lot of price spikes early in the pandemic have started to come untangled. As a result, we've seen a drop in the price of things like used cars. Uh, Gasoline prices, which soared to record highs after the Russia invasion of Ukraine, have come back to earth. Housing costs are still high, but they're expected to come down as cheaper rents that we can already see in the market start to show up in the official data. That leaves the price of services, things like auto repair, which has jumped 23% in the last year. The Fed's keeping a close eye on those prices, and they could be harder to control because so much of the price of services is driven by the cost of labor, and that means wages, which typically move in only one direction.
9: Have rising prices put a damper on people's spending?
17: Somewhat. uh, Spending did tail off at the end of last year, but forecasters think we could see a nice rebound when the January retail numbers come out tomorrow. Remember, we've added a ton of jobs over the last 12 months. And over the last seven months, wage growth has actually outpaced inflation. Vosjancik says that means a lot of people have money to keep spending if they want to.
0: Consumers have more purchasing power than we thought as we ended 2022. In large part, because the hiring was so strong, my sense will be that to are going to spend a
17: lot of that a possible clue to that willingness to spend was buried in today's inflation report and it's this one the price of men's underwear jumped five and a half percent last month uh, that suggests pretty robust demand now former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan used to consider men's underwear a kind of economic bellwether uh, it's generally out of sight nobody knows if you're wearing a new pair so if you're gloomy about the economy you make do without you only splurge when you're feeling confident a 5.5% price jump in a single month suggests a lot of men are feeling pretty upbeat about the economy. Uh, women's underwear prices, up only 2% last month.
29: Huh, who knew? NPR Scott Horsley,
5: thank you.
17: Happy Valentine's Day.
5: Juana, I don't think the world has mentioned enough today that it is Valentine's Day.
9: Gotta be honest here, I don't really observe this holiday. It's too cheesy, and I don't even really like chocolate. <laughs>
5: well, whether you are a fan or not of this holiday... Just be glad you weren't around for Valentine's Day in ancient Rome. It was actually a pretty brutal affair. You see, in mid-February, Roman men would sacrifice goats and a dog, make thongs from goat skins, and then run through Rome wearing those thongs, whipping women with straps of goat hide. And some women would line up for this, believing it would boost fertility. Some historians say that violent holiday, the Feast of Lupercalia, may be the pagan precursor to Valentine's Day.
9: Okay, so what about St. Valentine himself? Where does he come in?
5: Well, there's an even worse story there. In the 3rd century, one or two Christians named Valentine—historians aren't sure how many—apparently angered the Roman emperor, and they became martyrs. And the Catholic Church began honoring them with St. Valentine's Day on February 14th, right around the same time as the goat festival. It sounds like this holiday has some really grim origins. Yes, you can read more about the dark history behind Valentine's Day at NPR.org.
9: And this is NPR News.
1: And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, new routes have opened up for getting aid to rebel parts of Syria damaged by last week's earthquake, but thousands still need help. That's Ahead here on WBUR. We're
18: funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Give back to your community with a mental health and wellness degree from Leslie University. Get started at leslie.edu.
1: On Wall Street, stocks ended the day mixed. The Dow was down about a half a percent at $34,089. s and p 500 up just a fraction at 4136 And the NASDAQ was up a little more than a half a percent at 11960 in other business news, a Russian millionaire with ties to the Kremlin has been found guilty in Boston federal court of insider training. Jurors convicted Vladislav Kluschen for his role in the $90 million scheme. Prosecutors say he made illegal stock trades using secret earnings information from companies like Microsoft that was stolen from U.S. computer networks. Four other people who allegedly took part in the scheme remain at large. This is WBUR.
25: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974 in Cambridge, Brighton, and at Cambridgenaturals.com. And Into the Woods, the Tony Award winning production is coming to Boston direct from Broadway, two weeks only, beginning March 21st. Tickets at EmersonColonialTheater.com.
1: In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight, the lows around 35 degrees, partly sunny, breezy tomorrow, a high of 57. Thursday should be partly sunny with a chance of showers later in the afternoon. The high is around 63. Right now it's 48 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR
3: supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers.
5: And I'm Elsa Chang. People in northern Syria are still reeling from last week's earthquakes and the difficulties of getting aid. And we're going to hear now about the view in Syria. A note on the geography first. There is damage in parts of Syria that's controlled by the government and in areas outside the government's control, held by rebels. Precise numbers of those who have died are difficult to get right now. But at least 2,200 people have died in those opposition areas. But it's been hard to get aid in because of resistance from the government. Just last night, the United Nations announced that Syria has agreed to new routes into the area. NPR's Ruth Sherlock was in the opposition area today and joins us now from Turkey. Hi, Ruth. Hi. So I understand you went to a severely damaged town, to a shelter there and to a hospital. What did you hear from people?
20: Well, you know, some of what I heard was, to be honest, just completely gut-wrenching, some of what I saw too. Um, We went to this hospital where we saw this surgeon who was pale and exhausted. He told us he would performed maybe 15 amputations on patients, mostly children. And then this photographer had photos of eight dead children that have been as yet unidentified. I I actually couldn't look really. but he's posting those photos in the local police station and the local council for anybody who might be searching for them. And at the moment those bodies are lying just unclaimed in the hospital morgue. Then doctors took us around the wards, and we arrived in a room where we met Mohammed, who's eight. He had a broken arm and a broken leg and this plastic toy car beside him. We spoke to his great aunt, Yasmin Marjan, to learn more about his story. <laughs>
21: They said for three days till they could, like, take them out of the rubble.
20: Who, who's they? Him and... Him and... and the,
21: father, the father and the mother of the, if the kid.
20: Are they alive, his parents?
21: No, they Earth all passed away. Passed away. Mm-hmm.
20: He's got a sister as well? What?
21: Yeah, all of them died. He used to have sisters.
20: So he's an orphan now, and Marjan is his closest surviving relative. You know, I said, are you going to take care of him? And she said, I want to. Um, She's not sure how because her home has also been destroyed in the earthquake. Well, many other people, thousands
5: of people have lost their homes. I know you visited some people at a makeshift displacement camp.
20: What was it like there? It was this gymnasium with hundreds of families, lots of sounds of children running around. And these families have just literally laid blankets on the hard floor. That's their home now. Um, We met Shadia Afra. She's a mother of four young children who were there with her. Through an interpreter, I asked her how she tries to protect her children from the trauma of what they're experiencing.
15: Wherever you are in Syria, uh, the small kids, they get way older, way too quick from the realities that they witness every
29: single day.
15: There's nothing that they haven't seen yet.
20: You know, uh, this is still a country in a civil war and this earthquake follows children having survived airstrikes and displacement.
5: Well. What is the latest on trying to get more aid into these areas?
20: Well, this is the reason why we were brought into Syria by this opposition group, the Syrian Emergency Task Force, to highlight the problems of getting aid into Syria. Like you said, you know, the Syrian regime considers bringing aid over the border from Turkey a violation of its sovereignty and its allies, you know, Russia and China have repeatedly tried to limit with votes at the UN Security Council limit access across that Turkish border into Syria. But what this group is saying now is that this earthquake highlights the failure of that. They say the United Nations should not be beholden to the regime and its allies and the inner humanitarian catastrophe if you like this. Aid should be the priority, not politics. And they should have just moved faster because that might have saved more lives.
5: That is NPR's Ruth Sherlock in southern Turkey, just back from a trip into Syria. Thank you so much, Ruth.
9: Thank you. Christian nationalism has long been seen as a fringe viewpoint, but it is becoming more and more mainstream. That's according to a new survey from the Public Religion Research Institute and the Brookings Institution. They found an influential minority of Americans, particularly in the Republican Party, believe the country should be a strictly Christian nation. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports.
22: We need to be the party of nationalism. And I'm a Christian and I say it proudly, we should be Christian nationalists.
23: That was Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene during an interview this past summer. Christian nationalism, by the way, claims the U.S. is a Christian nation and that the country's laws should be rooted in Christian values. This point of view has long been most prominent in white evangelical spaces. But Robert Jones with the Public Religion Research Institute says he's been hearing it lately in other spaces, too, like members of Congress.
24: And there was some data out there. But what we saw as a need was to have a real set of, of data that would quantify what that term means, how many Americans really adhered to it. And we also wanted a more nuanced view, not just people who were hard adherents, but maybe people who were sympathetic.
23: And what his group found is that about 54 percent of Republicans either adhere to or sympathize with Christian nationalism. This does remain a minority opinion nationwide. According to the survey, only 10 percent of Americans view themselves as adherents of Christian nationalism. About 19 percent of all Americans said they sympathize with these views. Kristen kobis Dume, a history professor at Calvin University, says it's also important to note that these views are nothing new.
11: These ideas have been widely held throughout American history, and particularly since the 1970s with the rise of the Christian right. Dume says as the country has become less white and Christian,
23: these adherents to Christian nationalism want to hold on to their cultural and political power. That even includes authoritarianism. According to the survey, half of Christian nationalism adherents and nearly four in 10 sympathizers said they support the idea of an
11: authoritarian leader. At its root, there are some some, deeply anti-democratic impulses here. And so to see that more than half of one political party is um, committed to Christian nationalism, I think, explains a lot in terms of our inability to achieve much bipartisan agreement.
23: The survey also found correlations between people who hold Christian nationalist views, as well as anti-black, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim and patriarchal views. Tim Whitaker is the founder of the New Evangelicals. He grew up in the church and now spends his life trying to detangle these kinds of views from the evangelical faith. He says he's worried parts of his community are becoming anti-American.
7: Most Christian nationalists, either adherents or sympathizers, either agree or strongly agree with the notion that that they should live in a country full of other Christians.
23: Whitaker says he has faith that most Americans will continue to reject these ideas when they hear them. But he's worried about the outsized influence these views have in the Republican Party.
7: The reality is, is that a lot of these folks, especially the adherents, are very militant in this belief that God has given them a mandate to rule over the nation. And so For them, I think that that compromise is a a sign of weakness and realistically, the GOP needs to understand what they're dealing with.
23: And this is just the beginning, Robert Jones of PRRI says, of researchers like him understanding the scale of this belief in America. He says over time, we will have a better idea of whether these views are becoming more or less widely held. Ashley Lopez, NPR News.
1: This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 48 degrees in Boston at 629. Ahead here on WBUR, it's Marketplace. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 35 degrees. Partly sunny and breezy tomorrow. High near 57. Thursday should be partly sunny with a chance of showers later in the afternoon. The high is around 63 degrees. Rain during the first half of Friday, the high around 59. Again, right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston.
25: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, ICABoston.org.